if you were here last week, you remember I gave you homework. I had these passages to go through, and I discovered afterwards one of the passages I gave, which is called the prodigal son, I gave you the wrong number for it. So for those of you who found that and said, I don't see a father and two sons in this, I apologize. We put it out online right away afterwards, but I missed that, and I'm sorry for that. For those of you who knew, you just went, does he not know where things are? No, I don't, apparently. Uh, I want to let you know one other thing. Last week, we looked at the role of Scripture in prayer. On Tuesday, or Wednesday, October 2nd, from 6 to 7, uh, Ed Traub is going to lead us, lead anyone who wants to be here at the Spring Lake campus in a practice called Lectio Divina, which is a very specific way to kind of immerse yourself in a passage. And he'll guide you through it. And we want to invite you to be part of that, whether you're online or here today to be part of it. Now I want to just set the stage for where we're going again. This series we've titled Prayer, It's for Everyone. It's the idea that we often take prayer and say that's for spiritual people, for these kind of above and beyond Christians, rather than understanding prayer itself, as we defined it last week, is how we abide, how we pursue, how we remain in God's very presence. And we talked about this last week. I just want to remind us these four facets we're looking at over the series. So we looked at the role of scripture as prayer, this idea that the actual reading and reflecting and praying back is an aspect of prayer, that prayer is a much bigger umbrella to the biblical mind than it often is to us today. Now this week, we're going to look, and I'll come back to it, at the role of intercession. Next week, we're going to really dive into this idea of silence. And I I think it will be a profound week. I want to really encourage you not only to come back, but invite others, because we live in a very hurried, busy, noisy world. And I think more than ever, the role of silence and solitude and quiet is really a a kind of a, a beautiful tool for us in the midst of the craziness of how we live. And then the last week, we'll be looking at the role of scripture. Craig Dennison will be here, who is the founder of First 15. Many of you know what that is. It's an app that we use oftentimes for our own kind of practice of being with God. And it'll be great. He'll talk to us about the role of worship and what specifically that means. Now, as we're going to look at intercession today, I want to take you back, for those of you who've grown up in the church especially, but if you haven't, it's, it's okay. I think you'll relate to this. As kids, we have often been taught very specific ways where to pray. And it's usually about what we're to do when we pray. So you've probably had this before. You're, you're sitting down and you're taught as a kid, now sit down quietly, close your eyes, bow your heads, and put your hands together. And it's this idea, I know for at least me as a kid, it was like, if I don't do one of these things, I'm in trouble both with the person leading because their eyes aren't closed, they're watching to make sure mine are. And then also you kind of wondered, what's God think about all of this? We have these stipulations and ways we're supposed to behave as it relates to prayer. And oftentimes we attach that more to prayer than exactly what God wants to do in prayer. And just to give you an idea of how different this is from time to time, in the biblical mind, when we look at particularly the Jewish culture, the culture Jesus grew up in, they had this word they used for for the focus of prayer, and it's kavanah. It's a Hebrew word. It's used many times in the Old Testament particularly, but the idea of kavanah is focused, intentional pursuit. It's the idea that you are intentional and you're pursuing And so prayer was to have kavanah. It was to be intentional and focused. And how they would do it to better help understand it was they actually stood when they prayed often and looked up to the heavens. Now that's a little contradictory to bowing your head, closing your eyes. And I just want you to get an idea. Those things, what matters is not that they stood and looked up. It's that they learned about kavanah. How do we give attention to the Lord in prayer? 
How do we actually focus and be intentional? And make no mistake, we oftentimes, particularly in our movement, we like much more to be spontaneous in our prayers, to use our own words. Much of the church has read written prayers, and we kind of attribute, if I say it myself, I'll be focused. If I read something written, I won't. And yet in both ways, they require kavanah. How do we give our attention and our focus in prayer? And that's what we're going to look at today. And where I want to begin is in Luke's gospel, Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And I love this interaction. This is in Luke 11. We'll go through this longer passage, but we're going to look just at the beginning to kind of get a framework for it. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place which I absolutely love, by the way, that Jesus gave us this pattern, not only of regular prayer, but he had places he liked to go, kind of familiar places. For those of you who don't have that, there can be something beautiful. It's not a mandate, it's just a picture. But I also wanna remind you when it says this, Luke gives an account, oftentimes when he speaks about Jesus going to pray, he uses the word, Jesus went to lonely places. Now that word in the Greek literally means to the wilderness. And it always harkens us back to Luke chapter four, which is Jesus' encounter over 40 days in the wilderness, where in that time, in prayer, Jesus battles with the enemy. But what's always going on in prayer is Jesus is empowered and living in the presence of the spirit, and Jesus is always battling with identity. Everything the devil says is challenging his identity. If you really are this, if you really are this of a son of God. And so that's oftentimes In the midst of prayer, we're not trying to achieve for God. We're discovering his disposition towards us and operating out of that. I just want to remind us of that before we go on. Now, I love it. When he finished praying, his disciples are looking and they're going, hey, Lord, what you doing? I want to know how you do that. I just love that. They ask a question. Do you ever feel like in church we're not allowed to ask questions? I find oftentimes I don't want to ask a question because I'm fearful if I do, everyone else will go, that's a dumb question. We all know how to do that. Just to clear the air, we don't. There are so many things that people ask. I'm like, that is a great question. I often, in some of my friendships with people that aren't Christians, that just have questions about faith, they ask questions that my Christian friends and even I often have, but we're too scared to ask. And I love the posture of the disciples. Hey, Jesus, Would you teach us how to do this? By the way, as another side note, one of the things we've lost often in the church, and I mean this all over, not just us, is we forget there's legacy here. There are people that have been pursuing God for decades and have deep prayer lives. Do you think it might be good for younger believers to ask older believers, hey, tell me how you pray. Would you take me with you and let me just sit in this? And in essence, that's what the disciples do here. Well, Jesus, will you not just tell us about it, show us? We want to understand this. And so what we're going to look at is Jesus is going to give them a pattern of prayer. It's a familiar pattern, and we'll go through it briefly. But I want you to see afterwards much more the pictures he paints about the disposition of prayer. Because it's something we often don't consider. We're like, does Jesus really tell us about prayer? In this chapter in Luke 11, he tells us a lot. And so there's much to take in. Well, he begins with what we call in the common vernacular, the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Now, I wanna stop us and kind of go through this a little bit at a time. We've gone through this in series where we've taken it line by line, so I'm not gonna spend a long time on it. But there's something about understanding the pattern of prayer that's profound to us. 
So it begins simply with referring to him as father. And we hear it as our father, by the way, when we listen to it. It's a plural. It's us together praying. Hallowed be your name. Now, the beginning of prayer is always, it, it really speaks to Kavanaugh. The beginning of prayer is to be founded in who God is. When we see him as he is, it changes how we pursue him, what we ask him for, what we seek, and what we want to see him do. And so in a sense, what happens with the beginning of this Father, hallowed be your name, is we are discovering God's perspective. The way we typically talk about that around here is think of it as a microscope and a telescope. A microscope takes that which is very small and makes it appear much bigger than it is. When we look at our own circumstances, we take that which we see and we magnify it to make it much bigger than it is. When we start with who God is, we take a telescope and see that which seems far away and see the magnitude as it comes closer to what it really is. In other words, when we pray, we see who God is and it changes everything we do from there. By the way, why do you think we started with scripture last week? Because when we're in scripture, we discover who God is. Scripture constantly is revealing who God is. It gives us a different perspective. It's Kavanaugh. Perspective, by the way, with Kavanaugh means you turn from the way you see things to seeing it the way God does. It's a great way to start prayer, isn't it? Now we hear things like, hallowed be your name, and we go, that means make him holy, which is true. This is also a prayer for us. When you say hallowing the name of God, the understanding was as followers of him, we either make his name hallowed or we profane his name. And we do it this way, not just in words, but how we act. So did you know that how you act at work on Tuesday will either bring God glory or will profane his name? Did you know that how you are at your kids' activities? Just thought I'd throw that one out there either hollows his name or profanes his name. Did you know that in your singleness, how you live when no one's looking and in your married life and whatever age you are, hollows his name or profanes his name? So we pray, God, would you make your name hollowed in how I live 24-7? Now it continues, your kingdom come. We hear it in Matthew, it says your will be done. It is really the heart of what we're gonna call intercession. We'll get into more of what that means. We're saying that in heaven... Jesus rules and reigns. When he came, he lived and he died and he rose again. He began to give his rule and reign to us. And what are we praying for? God, take that rule and reign that's in heaven and bring it here. You realize that's a pretty powerful thing to pray, right? Oh, and yet we, we typically go by it, don't we? Your kingdom come, your will be done. But man, that's a powerful thing to pray. It continues. Give us today, each day, our daily bread. Now, I think for us, this is a very important facet of prayer. It's provision. Uh, we tend to not think about this much. Just in, so you have a background, in Proverbs, there are two aspects of daily bread. One says, don't give me too much, lest I disown you and kind of think I do it all myself. Don't give me too little, yet I disdain you and don't want anything to do with you. But give me my daily bread. Provide. Now, in this room, watching online, we are the richest people in the richest time of history. Guess what we might struggle with? And in case you don't know, Deuteronomy gives a huge caution to this. When Israel's in the wilderness, God cautions them through the prophet and says this to them in Deuteronomy 8. Hey, when you get into this land where you have everything, when you have all beyond what you ask, be careful. 
Because if you don't give thanks to me and recognize I'm the provider, you will start to think you made this for yourself. You accomplished it on your own. You realize that's a big caution to us, don't you? So guess what? Us taking regular time to thank God for his provision... And by the way, what he says afterwards is give thanks. And then he even goes on to say, do you not realize that even your ability to produce wealth comes from me? Even the good you have comes from me. Now, I just want you to see it because I think we miss it. And by the way, I, I talk about this regularly and I will keep talking about it regularly. So don't worry if you're thinking it's a, I'm beating a dead horse, I'll keep beating it, no problem. I think we need it. I love what Andy Stanley says. We always ask God why he doesn't give us enough. We never ask why he gives us too much. If we are the richest people in all of history, why do you think he gave us too much? Do you think when we get to this part of prayer, it might call us to something different than we could ever imagine? I just don't want us to miss this or move by it because it's a different, and I'm not saying, there may be some of you here are struggling, so I'm not saying too bad, you're better off than the rest of the world. There's still a struggle, but I want you to realize this is a part of what we have to deal with when we pray. It moves on. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. Now today we actually prayed a prayer of confession. And I'm, I'm venturing, we haven't had this discussion, but I'm betting for some of you, you're like, man, I grew up in a church where we confessed. What a downer. Why do we bother confessing when we're together? Jesus forgave us. That's true. Guess what? <laughs> Jesus told us to confess. You know that when he forgives us, he forgives us past, present, and future. But I want you to also realize when we don't make confession a part of our life with him, we begin to justify and rationalize what we do that is offensive and hurtful. And the role of confession is very important in part of the Christian life. And make no mistake, when you fully understand your own need, you begin to understand the needs of others. That's our basis, by the way, for forgiving others. You realize that that's a part of the Christian life too. Do you know what we should be experts in more than the rest of the world? Forgiveness. Now, I don't mean forgiveness like we do it in the uh, play a card. I forgive you, which means absolutely nothing. It just means I said it, but I'm gonna go home bitter and say, pretend I forgave you. And make no mistake, I'm not saying it's easy. I think forgiveness is very, very hard. It's following the path of Jesus, absorbing the pain, dying to retribution, finding new life out of it. But it's a part of the Christian life. Imagine if we go before God regularly and go, I'm really having trouble forgiving this person. God, would you help me to see the depth of my need and the depth of their need and look at my own life differently? Jesus made it very clear when we forgive little, it's because we love little and we've been forgiven little. The more we understand our need for forgiveness, the more we walk in forgiving. You're very quiet, you're welcome. I can tell you're really excited about that part. The last part, lead us not into temptation. We're gonna, in January, actually do another series on prayer where we'll look at the aspect of what we call warfare. He's talking in here about the temptation we have in our own sinfulness and the temptation the enemy brings. There is an enemy, he is a devil, he has demons, he has all sorts of things that are plotting against us to destroy us. We're saying, God help us in our own depravity, and in those things we struggle with around us. You get the picture.
It's a beautiful pattern. We could spend the whole time on it, but what I love is how Jesus takes from this pattern and then he gives pictures. He just gives them pictures now about what prayer really is. Let me not just tell you the pattern, let me give you pictures of it. And he continues. He said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Now let me stop just for a minute because I want you to understand how important what he's asking is. It's not crazy that he's asking to going to a friend because he has to help someone who came to his house. In the culture of Israel, there was such a high value of, pros- of basically of hospitality and of helping those who were alone and struggling that you actually were to put things out on the welcome mat to remind them you are welcome to join us when you don't have food or don't have a place. It was built into their fabric. And I want you to understand how built in it is to seeing that with people in need. There are two things, if you look through all of scripture leading up to Jesus coming, that God gets upset at Israel about. And we say this over and over again because we don't want to miss it. The first one is that they worshiped God alongside of other gods. They said, yeah, we like Yahweh, but we like this, and we like this, and we like this. Everything's good for everyone. By the way, does that sound familiar today? You know, God, there's one God, and he says, it's me. He's not jealous because he's insecure. He's jealous because he's it. He doesn't want you to have something that ain't real and doesn't help you. The second thing, though, was whenever they forgot those in need. Because they were people in need. They lived in slavery for 400 years. And when God brought them out of that disparity, he said, you better always remember those in need. And I want to caution us because we tend to separate them. We'll say this, you know what? I have spiritual needs, so I'm bankrupt there. And that's not my fault, or it is my fault, but God will help me. But then there are people in physical need, and we go, well, they got themselves into that. It's not our job to help. And God says, guess what? Those two are related. Caring for people in need is founded in your understanding of your own spiritual need. And so I think you just want you to remember this. The story Jesus is telling here locks these together. Always care about those in need, every kind of need. I just didn't want you to miss, that's the foundation. He's not asking something weird for them. He's asking something that he would normally do. Hey, I need help. This friend's coming to me, I don't have anything. Now, suppose the one inside answers. Don't bother me, the door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't give up and get up and give anything. But then it continues. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of the friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity. I just love that. Shameless audacity. Man, that's a word we ought to keep with those two words. I love it. Because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, I want you to get a picture of what Jesus is telling us about intercession. He's saying that you have a friend that comes, that they're in need, and guess what? You don't have anything to help them with. So you go to the other friend. Guess who the other friend is? That's God, by the way. He's giving us a picture that friendship with God is connected to caring about those in need. He's basically saying, if you want to know what intercession is, we tend to think of intercession of let me bring God my needs. And he's saying, no, no, no. Intercession is caring for those in need around you and taking them to God that you could never help. But it's not just giving it to them. It's doing it with shameless audacity. Do you know what shameless audacity means? It means it's reckless. 
it means it doesn't care what it looks like to anyone else. Have you ever thought to yourself, I want to ask God for this, but I don't want anybody here because it sounds kind of, I'm not sure how it sounds. What will they think of me? You don't care. Have you ever thought, I better not ask that of God because I think he'll be upset? No, no, you don't care. You want to tag this? It's like desperate recklessness. Have you ever had something that you're shamelessly into and you can't help yourself? I'll remind you of things because I've seen you in different settings. Now, unfortunately, because I enjoy sports, I enjoy watching people be shameless in their teams. You realize that when we're excited about something, all of you who are so dignified, oh, I don't like to be emotional, and I just keep this all, I'm chill. I've watched you watch sports. You are not chill at all. You're shameless because you're passionate about it, and it matters to you. And when you're passionate and it matters, and I joked earlier, but listen, I've sat through a lot of sporting events and I've even been there. And you as parents, man, you are shameless sometimes. There's times you say things to refs and the kids and the other teams are like, I don't, uh, I'm uncomfortable because you don't care. You care so much about what happens. It doesn't matter. Jesus is giving us a picture here. You wanna know what it's like to pray? It's basically looking at people around you in need and you care so much that it's helping. You know you can't do anything that you shamelessly go to God and go help, help those in need. That's intercession, by the way. And if you don't think God loves intercession, I wanna take you through just a few stories in the Bible that are heroes of the faith. Moses, you know, is a hero of the faith. Do you know what happens in Moses' life? Moses has these people of Israel that he takes, he goes up on the mountain. They've already gotten out of Egypt. He's hanging out with God. And down there in their wonderful joy of being freed, they make a golden calf and worship it instead of God because it's taken 40 days for them to wait. You're not feeling very sympathetic, I hope, towards them because I don't. Though I wonder if I wouldn't be there too. And then when he comes down, Aaron in his brilliant ownership says, hey, I don't know, that calf just kind of made itself. Like, it's just a weird response. It grew up from the ground. No, it didn't. Moses goes back to God and God says, I regret having these be my people. I can wipe them out and start over. Guess what Moses does? Oh, God, don't do it. God, have mercy on them. People won't know how good you are unless you make. He interceded. He begged God not to let it happen. Do you realize that's the heart of intercession? He didn't have anything to gain by it. And they really could have had what they needed. And he said, please don't. And you think that's alone. Abraham does the very same thing. God's gonna wipe out a city. And Abraham says, hey God, if there are 50 good people in the city, 50 people that wanna follow you, would you not do it? And God says, okay. And Abraham realizes, man, 50 is an awfully high number. Let's drop it down a little bit. How 45? Oh yeah, sure, I'll do it. Oh, that's still kind of a high number. And this goes back and forth for quite a while. He drops it down to quite a low number which it still doesn't meet, by the way, but he intercedes for them. Do you see the heart of intercession in Abraham? Let, let me give you another picture from Abraham's life. Abraham and Sarah are told they will have a kid, and they wait decades for this to happen. This is just a cool picture that's often spoken of in the oral tradition. It's, not, it's how you interpret the passage. In the chapter before all this happens, Abraham is in a city through a series of circumstances where everyone in the city is barren through some disobedience they didn't even know they did. And God tells this person who's a leader of that community, tell Abraham to pray and I'll open the womb. So Abraham intercedes and prays for everyone else to have kids, and they do. In the next chapter, Sarah gets pregnant with Isaac. 
Now, I'm not telling you this is a plan. If you pray for everyone else, you'll get what you want. But it is fascinating how in Abraham's focus on others, God came back and blessed him. I wonder what would happen if you and I started asking more about what God wants to do around us and not for us, how we might gain his heart. Because that's the part I want you to see. I think this is connecting to God's heart, not simply a pathway. And in case you don't know it, this is Jesus' mission. Do you ever wonder what's Jesus doing now that he's risen? Let me show you this. This is Romans. This is one of the New Testament letters. Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Hebrews tells it even in a more dramatic way. Therefore, he who is Jesus is able to save us completely. He, they come through God, to God through him, meaning through his death and resurrection, he gives life because he is always lives to intercede for us. Last night when you were sleeping, guess what Jesus was doing? He was interceding for you. He was looking at the Father going, man, you got Father, these people, they need you. They need you. They're even, tomorrow, they're gonna hear about my heart for this. Would you start stirring them now? Do you know right now while we're meeting, Jesus is interceding. You know this afternoon when you go, and many of you go to watch a really horrible football game like I will, God is interceding. And by the way, he's not interceding like, please let the Lions win. He is not really caring about that. He's just thinking, oh, tonight when you're sleeping, he'll be doing Tomorrow, when you're at work or at home or at school, he's gonna be interceding for you. Moment by moment, day after day. Guess what? When we pray like this, we are playing the life and role of Jesus. Here's the crazy thing. God not only wants to answer it, but it will change you. You will understand his heart better the more you do this. That's pretty cool. It's very cool, by the way. This is the first piece he gives, this beauty of interceding. Now he takes it in another layer. He gives yet another story, and I want you to see this. I love how the stories continue and the way he does it. And this will be a familiar text to some of you, but I don't think you'd put it in this context because we tend to use this one alone oftentimes in the church. We like sound bites rather than the full story. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, you know how we say this oftentimes? Hey, you got a need, you ask. Hey, you want to find, you seek. Hey, you knock for you, individually. That's how we tend to view this, isn't it? So now you hear it connected to this and you think, oh, maybe Jesus is saying something much different. Maybe what he's saying is, when you see needs around you, ask. Guess what? I'm going to respond. When you see needs around you, seek, and you're going to find what they need. When you see needs around you, you knock. You bug me for this. And by the way, in case you don't know, ask, seek, and knock are not one-time verbs. In the Greek, it means to ask again and again and again and again. To seek again and again and again. And you're already irritated that it's taken me too long, aren't you? Because you can't stand it if it doesn't happen right now. Have you ever ordered something off Amazon and be mad because tomorrow it didn't come at exactly the time it was supposed to? 
Are you mad when you get to a restaurant and it doesn't come more quickly? Are you mad when people don't answer you or respond to your texts and emails like that? You are. Because we are the most indulged and needing of immediate, some kind of immediate response than any time in history. Do you think there was never a more important message than ask again and again and again? See, I think this message for us is huge. Don't tell me you've been praying a few times. Tell me you've been praying 10 years. What would happen if we actually kept bugging God for things? And by the way, Jesus tells another story to remind us of persevering in prayer. He tells a story of this widow who has injustice in her life and she goes to the judge who's not a fair judge and begs him for reciprocity to fix this. And it says the judge doesn't even want truth. He doesn't even care about what's good, but she keeps asking again and again and again. And it's not the vernacular, but basically she nagged him so much. He said, fine, get what you want. And then I love it. Jesus goes, how much more will God give you as a just judge who loves you if you keep asking? I want to take this one level further. I bet you read this, I do. So I say to you individually, ask individually, seek individually, knock individually. Guess what this is? You ask, you seek, you knock. Do you think maybe we've forgotten how to come together and ask God for help? We've forgotten it in our homes. Marriage is one of the scariest places to pray, I found. I told you this last week. You ask a couple if they pray together and they just look at you like, I'm gonna kill you, please don't ask that. You know why? Because there's power in it. Do we sit with kids? Do we sit as singles in our communities? Do we sit as divorced people with others and pray? And do we sit as the church praying? You know, we do this uh, monthly prayer thing here. We have a day of prayer and fasting. It's next Monday. I didn't plan it for this message, though it worked out very nicely. And we come together as a board and staff, and we always tell you about it. And did you know that all of you are too busy to be there? I mean, I mean this with a little bit of, I mean this in a gentle slap. I wonder what would happen if you guys started coming and we started asking. What do you think God might do tomorrow night? Oh, by the way, it's from six to seven tomorrow night, right here in West 200. I'd love to have some, I'd like to be overwhelmed tomorrow. But you, went, you know what, this is one step I can take. I realize you have busy schedules, some of you won't be able to, but if all of you say, hey, it's not my deal, Jesus said it is. Ask together. I wanna invite you to be part of this. One thing, it's not the only thing, there's a lot more to do, but it's an easy opportunity. I wonder what might happen if we had more of us asking together what God might do when we come together. I love this picture, asking for others, asking again and again and again. It's really a simple idea of what intercession is. It's asking shamelessly over and over again for others. Let's get shameless. Let's start asking for things we don't actually think we could do on our own, because by the way, that's the stuff God wants to do. Do you ever think, I wonder what it would be like and let yourself dream of what God could do to change our culture and the church and the communities and the world around us. I keep thinking about many of the people that I'm reaching out to, my friends that don't follow Christ. And I pray for them diligently, but I go, what would happen if we started praying for them together? 
I wonder if what's waiting to change is more of God's people asking. What would happen if we started asking? I, I see lots of relationship breakdown in the life of the church. What if we started asking God to move together for God to restore broken relationships? To take parents and kids and bring them back together and spouses and all sorts of people who feel lonely and alone and put them in families. You know that if you're single or divorced in our community, it's a rough life, don't you? Because we love families around here. What if we started praying for those who feel alone? It'll lead us, by the way, to start doing things for people, in case you didn't figure that out. I just wonder what God might want to do. Now, I could leave it here, but I love how Jesus finishes this, and it's kind of an exclamation that I think is beautiful for us. It's kind of saving the best for last. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. He's giving this picture, which is a very common one, where you tell a story of, if you do this, how much more will God? Like, and that's where he's going to go on to. He's going to give you a picture of what God wants to do. And we all understand this. Any of us who are parents, you know you do anything to help your kids, right? You don't try to take them down. You do everything to make life better. He's giving us that picture. And now listen to what he says about it. How much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? <laughs> oh, this is awesome, by the way. Here's what we tend to do in the church. We positionally understand that when we become Christians, God gives us a spirit. So we go, it's a done deal. We got a spirit. Not disagreeing with that. We're given the spirit. But in case you don't realize... Paul regularly prays this. This is true throughout all of the church history. While we're given the Spirit, he keeps filling us again and again and again and again in new ways. That's why Paul prays that the Spirit of wisdom and revelation will fill us. He prays things that we'll know the height and breadth and depth and width of God's love. He prays that we'll know the riches of God, that we'll grow up into the love of God. Guess what? We should regularly be asking the Spirit to fill us and others again and again and again, this is how I've concluded about it very practically. I want more of God and I need more of God. <laughs> it was a prayer I learned growing up. When God's doing something good, we just pray more, Lord. That's what he's telling us. Why would we not ask for the spirit to be given freshly to us and to those around us? And by the way, in case you don't get it, all that I'm asking you to do, you can't do on your own. Every week when we ask you to do things, the only way you can do it is by the Spirit helping you. The role of the Spirit is central to us. And I love that Jesus finishes it. Hey, for all the other things you're going to ask, for all the other things you're going to want in life, guess what the most significant is? You ask that the Holy Spirit will fill people. Whew. What if we just spend an hour tomorrow night asking for the Holy Spirit to fill people? Do you think something cool might happen? What if it didn't happen and we went, we need to do this again? And then it still didn't happen. We need to do this again. What if we did this for a year? Oh, what if suddenly God started moving and went, I should have, I'm glad I kept going. Don't you dare give up. Let's do more of this. You want to know what intercession is? It's very simple. It's a beautiful thing and it's very simple and it gets the heart of God. It's asking shamelessly over and over again for others. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Let's pray. Lord, I ask with what we've talked about, what's not from you, let it fall. God, what is from you, ignite us. God, give us the heart of Christ. 
Give us your spirit freshly. God, that we'll start pursuing shamelessly again and again and again your help for others. And Lord, along the way, let us discover your very heart that we would become more like Christ for your glory and our joy. I pray this. Amen.